uh, against China. Yeah, absolutely. On a geopolitical level, one could see um, not only the TPP, but also the European version, the TTIP, in combination with the global TISA, TISA agreement, which is about uh, financial deregulation. Uh, These three agreements go together. They're all spearheaded by America. They're all designed to uh, lock into agreements Uh, all of America's client states and allies across the planet. And, of course, they exclude the BRIC countries and China. Um, So I think, you know, with America coming out only last year, talking about its pivot to Asia, uh, both military and in terms of culture and economics, it's quite clear that this is an attempt um, to shore up their economic control and dominance for the next century. Now, it's not over, is it? Even though they're very happy that they've uh, uh, signed this contract, it's not over, is it? No, it's a long way from over. Um, so, I mean, look, they haven't even signed anything yet. What they've actually done is just said, we, we in principle agree. And now they have to go through a process of what America calls certification and what we call ratification. Um, The interesting thing out of this, which again shows the geopolitical and economic dominance of America within this negotiation, is that America basically gets to cherry-pick through every other country's legislation and to put to us that they believe our domestic law does not accurately reflect what we've just signed up to and therefore demand that we make changes to that law. Uh, So effectively we have Washington telling us what we need to change in our domestic law to be in alignment with this new agreement, much like they did with the uh, World Trade Organization. So this process requires certain components of legislation will need to be changed in the partnering nations. And this is an opportunity for the politicians, our elected representatives, to actually stand up uh, to these secret negotiations and refuse to change the legislation and ratify this process. Uh, it's looking very likely, in fact, that America is going to have a very hard time getting this legislation through Congress. Uh, And now, if Congress refused to ratify it, the entire agreement will fall over without a doubt. Uh, If the other 11 partnering nations, or people like Australia and Canada, uh, refuse to ratify the changes, then it may also fall over. Uh, So we still have a way to go as civil society uh, and stakeholders in this in terms of resisting it. And a lot of pressure needs to be applied to those that sit in our Senate and have the capacity to block this legislation uh, as it comes up. Unfortunately, one of the saddest parts about the TPP is that the ISDS um, provision, which is the secret corporate tribunal provision, does not have to be legislated. Um, so that's, that's a really bad thing for everybody because nobody gets a say on that. Uh, so unless we change our laws about how we sign up to treaties and we specifically legislate to ban future ISDS in any agreements, uh, we don't get a say on that one. But, you know, sometimes it's the little things that undo the big things. So uh, certainly for myself and for a lot of the campaigners I've been speaking to in the last 24 hours around the world, everyone is very keen for civil society in all the partnering nations to continue to apply pressure to their elected representatives and to call for blockages around the ratification process. And that's kind of where we're at, I guess, is shifting our focus to understanding that um, this is not over. They still have to get it through particular legislative components. And the more pressure we can apply now through the ratification process, uh, the more chances we have of actually seeing this deal not be signed. Uh, and it has happened before. Uh, for example, the internet uh, censorship and filtering legislation, SOPA, that America tried to internationally push with partnering nations, it made it all the way through to the point of ratification and it fell over at the point of ratification because of the enormous outcry and public pressure that came from around the world. Uh, so we still have an opportunity to prevent this from going ahead. Okay, thank you very much for talking to me, Sam, and uh, this is definitely a watching brief. Definitely. Thanks, Annie. Bye. Bye. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio.
On this week's edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR, we'll go to part two of the interview with author and historian John Tognolini, who has recently launched two books titled A History Man's Past and Other People's Stories, A Shared Memoir, Part One, and Brothers, Part One, Gallipoli, 1915. I'm the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. And governments in recent times have sought to uh, glorify the war latest attempt with Abbott, and he's uh, going to splash a lot of money out on a... Uh, Oh, Abbott. Well, it's Abbott. Okay, I changed it. Open letter from Prime Minister Abbott to ex-Prime Minister. Is a both saying that. Made a few changes in the book. Uh, but I'll never forget, and a lot of people won't forget, the young bloke who got killed in Afghanistan a few years ago on Channel 7, called Abbott making that stupid macho comment, ah, oh, shit happens. And one thing that really cracked me up thinking about because you're feeling that anger like who is this guy um was gary foley and i put this in the book and gary foley said just think there's a big pile of shit somewhere thinking abbott happens and i've put that as a question and yeah there's an open letter but the thing is you look at people um like my old man used to sleep with one eye open when i was a kid and he died when I was a kid. He died when I was about 12 years old. And I would go up to my mum, who was a World War II veteran as well. And she'd go, it's a war. And I asked her, how can you sleep with one eye open? And, yeah, and her own experience, look, my old man went through Greece and Crete. And uh, she didn't go out of Australia. She actually got busted by the Air Force military coppers. Uh, for cooking in a fish and chip shop at Mildura because you imagine a young woman being stuck out there and it was pretty boring on the base. But she was told by officers, don't have anything to do with those uh, blokes going to Bomber Command in Britain because a lot of them won't be coming back. And, you know, sort of pretty horrible type of thing in the whole thing of war itself. And one thing, getting back to Brian Day. Uh, Brian Day is actually... When I met Brian, he was a training instructor at Kapuka for Michael Tognolone, who I've got in the book. And he's a different branch of the uh, Tognolones, or Tonolone, as you say in Italian, from Toronto in the north of Italy. And he got killed in his first week in Vietnam. And pretty sad and tragic and it was actually he was driving along armored personnel character and knew he that and landmine australian landmine because the vietnamese start from australian uh, minefield and a lot of these mines were booby trapped with hand grenades they used it and hits the apc and engine of the apc gets on top of him they give him an overdose of uh, morphine there was nothing they could do for him and yeah, you know, eased his way out. But, you know, the whole thing about him being only 19. And um, where can listeners purchase uh, copies of your two books we've spoken about on today's program? Writers and e-books, but also if you go John Tognolini, independent author, I've actually got an author's website and I've got a link not just to those two books but also uh, my two other books. My first book was a novel, uh, bit of a satire-type, caricature-type thing on Katoomba where I used to live, the Mountain City Murders. And the other one, my little personal story of heart disease, i got a mechanical valve in my heart, but uh, it's called Singing Johnny Cash and the Cardiac Ward. God, I mean, even though it's a memoir-type thing, it's, I give a bit of a reference to Camo and um, another great bloke that passed away, uh, Neville Killer Kane, staunch old BLF man and trades all when he passed away 2012, yes, um, at the flag at half-mast and there's a few building sites around town that had a minute silence for him. He died of leukaemia. But basically one thing about that book was encouraging men around my age uh, to get themselves checked out in regard to their heart because there's been a lot of people that can't cope with the first symptom of heart disease, which is sudden death. You know, you think of uh, James Galdafini from The Sopranos, who plays Tony Soprano, dies of a heart attack in Rome, gets found by his 12-year-old son. I could point out Billy Thorpe, who I mentioned in the book, uh, Joe Strummer, another one. Uh, yeah, very... So it's a story of heart disease educating people, because compared to women, we're pretty shocking with our own sort of health, men. Uh, but also, it's a it's a common disease and it kills too many 
people too young. And in addition to your four books, uh, you've also produced numerous uh, radio and video documentaries. Yeah, well, I made three films, but two of them I've got up on YouTube. One was the uh, the BLFD registration, the Victorian story. Great mate being interviewed a long way through it is uh, John Cummins. Very comprehensive sort of history. This is what the Labor Party does to workers uh, and what they did do to workers, particularly in Victoria and not just Camo, but people uh, your listeners will be familiar with, such as Dave Kieran, uh, the late Johnny Lowe, uh, a lot of good people. But it goes through major events, uh, the deregistration itself, uh, the big riot at, uh, after the left raid, where they made... They did the raid, then they made a legislation that night in Parliament. So the police were basically acting off the Kane government with crap. But also, I shouldn't say right, I think you got people talking about events, about when uh, Nauru House and they had the big protest outside there. And, you know, the police, uh, I guess, copped the flogging because of all the... the the biff they've been given the builders' labourers for a number of years before it, yeah, and you know, and you had a BLF bloke, and he's talking about how he got knocked over in front of the crowd, and you know, that was a straw that broke the camel's back. But there's a lot of stuff in that BLF deregistration we've got today with the Australian Building Construction Commission, the Royal Commission on Trade Unions, um, even the great Camo himself. Um, when I think about how. That industrial Gestapo was handing him until about a night before he died of his brain tumour. They decided we better not uh, lay any charges and we better stop our investigation. I mean, what sort of people do that? One thing, when Camo did something like... He did about six months all up in jail. You know, the whole thing about an occupational hazard for trade union organisers serving their members and going on to their workplace. Um, Camo did a month in jail and he says, what gives you the right... You know, I haven't sort of groveled that sort of stuff. They played a bit of it at the John Cummins dinner from the film, which was... A few weeks back, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's good getting those stories out. And one of the other films I've got, which I was involved with, um, I was involved in a big strike, three-month occupation of Cockatoo Island Dockyard. And I'm actually working on a, a second part of uh, History Man's Parts where... I go into the BLF, I did a couple of documentaries for uh, the ABC's Radio National, RN, whatever name they want to call it. One was on scaffolders and riggers, and I went in the Westgate Bridge disaster. Camo actually gave me a hand with it, got me uh, in touch with Paddy Hannaby, one of the survivors of the Westgate. And I did that as a documentary, but I want to get a few things off my chest about the BLF deregistration. But the other thing, too, I was involved with, as I said, Cockatoo as a painter and docker, but I don't mean to bring up sort of differences in the past because there's too much, there's there's no need for it, but going over the years, I got told by uh, the BLF secretary in New South Wales, Steve Black, to apologise to a bloke by the name of Michael Costa who was a socialist comrade of mine many years ago, but he's now a good mate of uh, Andrew Bolton. He privatised much of Victoria, the railway system for a dollar a kilometre, and big fan of Margaret Thatcher. Apparently the Labor Party's too left-wing for him, which is just insane. But uh, I got told to apologise to him, and uh, I won't say what the terms were, but put this way, it was about... uh, how 30 pieces of silver keeps up with inflation from the Roman occupation of Palestine. I threw my line with the painters and uh, with the people at Cockatoo and end up becoming a painter and docker there. And the painters and dockers had a tradition of bringing and uh, taking a lot of blacklisted trade unionists. And it's still dirty about getting laid off two weeks before my daughter's birth, uh, over 25 years ago. Uh, but. Uh, and I'm still dedicated to a uh, uh, shipbuilding and ship repair industry. Uh, and it was a great place to work, Cockatoo. And I did another documentary for Radio National, and I actually got a trip on a on the last ship that was built at Cockatoo Dockyard, the HMA Success, from uh, Hobart to Sydney. So I did a documentary about people that built the ship, the naval crew. 
operating because one ship you know, kept the whole Navy going for 18 months, for nine months, nine months. Yeah. And the Cockatoo Island dispute ended, um, if I'm correct, in a, in a sellout deal from the ACTU and the union leadership. <laughs> yeah, under the threat of sort of, you know, you're going to get penalised, you're going to get fined and this sort of stuff. And you know, you want to tell them, the, you know, how uh, the union, the only union leader that stood by the, their bottle and said, well, if they're going to make issues and serve notices on us, well, they can send a letter to the Pines and Dockers office in Balmain with the rest of the union's creditors. We'll stay there. Yeah, we're not going to honour it. Bob Galligan, great man, he passed away a few years ago. Um, there's actually a, a great picture of the Pines and Dockers banner with um, Bob Galligan's face in it. And Bobby was a great man, like two great working-class people I think people should know about it, John Cummins and Bob Galligan. Yeah. And they certainly made a, an impact for a lot of work and fact. Uh, Bobby always worked at Cockatoo, then he became a vigilance officer for the union. And yeah. What's now the MUA has got that pays and dockers history to it. Of course, uh, John Cummins is well known at 3CO, who's a long-time presenter of the Concrete Gang. Harold on the old Concrete. <laughs> yeah, we can say that. But yeah, it goes back to Rialto. He was actually, I think, he, he was a founder of the Concrete Gang, wasn't he? He was one of the first people to do it. Uh, the Concrete Gang was there, the first show here at 3CO, so yeah, Cummins would have been one of the founding broadcasters. Yeah, but also just his history. Like, I mean, you know, the shop's still in Westgate, Rialto... Um, yeah, just going through the history of a camo sort of... I was actually at a, talking to a couple of people yesterday. We were talking about camo and the sort of legacy of the John Cummins Foundation, which is a living memorial to the man, which has helped a lot of people that went through what he did, but also a lot of working-class kids, uh, which is great. Yeah. His uh, legacy looms large in the city, uh, as you would see, hanging from all the cranes over the, the Eureka flag uh, with yeah. John Cummins as... Uh, well, even here at Ferrucia, but the thing that cracks me up, and I mention this in my book, Singing Johnny Cash and the Cardiac Ward, uh, I'm wearing this, Tim Godden's actually got me a, a John Cummins T-shirt, and uh, I'm wearing it in Katoomba, where he's not so widely known, and this woman comes up, oh, is that Johnny Cash? Uh, normally, you know, you get some people they're mistaken for uh, Bon Scott from ACDC. <laughs> and I'm just going, no, no, it's Camo. And I just think, you know, both Camo and Bon Scott and Johnny Cash would be cracking on that one. Yeah? But it's that history we've got to get out there, and that's what I'm doing. Like, this next book will be going in a lot as well as getting stuck into the China Free Trade Agreement. But, I mean, we need to get that history of the year called out in the years because, you know, Bob Hawke, it sickens me a bit that people think he's a great working-class hero. He was our Margaret Thatcher at the time for people that lived through the 80s. Of course, it was Hawke who went about deregistering the uh, BLF. And- oh, BLF shut down Cockatoo, got rid of the pays and dockers from Williamstown, uh, put us in the globalisation along with Keating, uh, just opened the door up and... Uh, we had something like about 45% union membership and we began up when Keating lost to Howard in 96 about 23% union membership. So I think people like that have got a case to answer for, plus all the other things. And if you look at it too, this is a thing that gets me, okay, uh, I'm a man of 56, but I grew up in that whole concept of Australia, land of a fair go and so forth, and then we get the aspirational classes. But I remember Kerry Packer when he wasn't a billionaire, and we've had that whole billionaire class. At the same time with those accord politics, not only the rise of the billionaires, but we've also got the rise of the working poor. People working 50, 60 hours a week, and they still can't make it. And you know, Just the insane amount of people... People paying rent, people paying mortgages. and you know. Oh, in casualisations at nearly 50% of the Australian workforce, and we have union membership down 16%. Where we, uh, yeah, and the casualisation is just rampant, and it just let the, the scene, it just set the scene for your Kennets and your Howards, and of course, it's nice to say ex Prime Minister Abbott, but we all know uh, Turnbull's basically Abbott with allocution lessons and social skills. and yeah, a bit cynical when you think about it. They knew Abbott wasn't going to get up in the next election, so they've done like uh, a bit of a coup d'etat 
but just the way they treat people like mugs who think people are going to wear it, you know, which is just a nonsense. But, you know, Australia's really, we should be called Murdoch land because it's Murdoch's, you know, he got, what's it, $122 million he got in the first budget? I mean, OK, we can talk about Joe Hockey as the treasurer that never passed the budget ever in Australian history, uh, but they handed over $822 million bucks to News Corp. And, you know, how much propaganda do we get from papers like the Herald Sun, Telegraph and New South Wales and 70% of Australia's newspapers and that's sort of rotten. Of course, your demagogues like, uh, your shock jocks like Andrew Bolt. Thanks uh, for coming in today, John. Publicise your two books and uh, let us know when the other books come out. Oh, show indeed, Marcus, and it's great to come down here to Free CR. (laughs) <laughs> what a great interview. What a great man. And uh, you're, you are on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie talking uh, uh, about the past and the future of progressive politics and uh, the enemy of progressive politics. Uh, we've got uh, the wonderful wit of Kevin Healy coming up next. But before we do, Bendigo anti-Islamophobic uh, rally is on today. A big event, Saturday, October the 10th. That's today, if you haven't got it in your calendar. Uh, 12pm at Bendigo Town Hall. Uh, if you're going up there on the train, it's a two-minute walk. It's Hardgrave Street, 189 to 193 Hardgrave Street. That's uh, a big rally that's going to go on in Bendigo this Day, 12pm. Tomorrow, Sunday the 11th of October, Refugee Rally, Stand Up for Refugees. That's at 2pm. That's at the State Library, corner of Swanston Street and Latrobe Street. There are many other things going on as well. October the 15th is the anniversary of the Westgate Bridge disaster, 45-year anniversary, and there is going to be a memorial uh, 11am at uh, Memorial Park there. Um, there's also an exhibition of, this is a much more cheerful thing, uh, the uh, exhibition of Mary Creek from Wasteland to Parkland. Uh, it's going to be at the Brunswick Library. Uh, it's on until October the 30th and on the same day, October the 15th, the uh, the McGregor's leading lights of that uh, uh, rejuvenation of urban landscape uh, will be at the Brunswick Library at 7.45pm to give a talk about their great exploits. Now we're going off to hear what Kevin has to say about the week that was. A week solidarity, Becky Team Lister, when the signing of the US of the UN of the US of the World Trans-Pacific Not-So-Free Trade Agreement shows just how untruly was he these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work and iron lots are who abuse our environmental laws. If these untruly was the economy and job wreckers continue this abuse, not so free trade minister Andrew Robb the workers warned, they will give the great international resource giants they accuse of environmental vandalism, which in itself shows how extreme these long-haired commie greenies are, as if responsible international resource giants would not care about the environment if they will force these responsible giants to sue the Trublowazi government, quite properly sue under the terms of this wonderful agreement, which is so good for all of us. This shows just how untrublowazi these evil environmental terrorists are. The responsible international resource giants agreed with Andrew. Our bottom line shows we just love the Trublowazi environment. Uh, so, Andrew, the Troubler Aussie people will now be able to see the details of what you've signed us up to? Yes, yes, certainly. You can have a look and amend it where we see fit. Uh, good God, though, what, what would our partners think of us? How could we be trusted as a reliable partner? Uh, but when it was criticised for secrecy, you said we could see it at this time. Certainly, certainly, you can see it. Uh, but the US of Congress is odds-on to change it. Of course. After all, the US OB has made it clear uh, it and not evil China, not, not that we have anything against evil China, mind you, it must determine the conditions of world trade, must control world trade. That is its prerogative as a very, very, very close friend of True Blue Aussie. 
But, but what if the US of changes key clauses which attack our autonomy? Medicine costs going through the roof, for instance. That is a typical anti-US of 3CR question. They will make changes in a very, very, very close, friendly way. Well, that sounds like we've all been worried over nothing. The no connection whatever award of the week to the announcement that Nauru would process, six, process 600 refugee applications in seven days after the sponges on our goodness had been enjoying the Pacific Island hospitality for more than two years, just three days before a case involving the asylum seekers was to hit the High Court. Now, OK, some people think there might be some connection, but the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boat's Peter Duffer, still breathing a sigh of relief. From our point of view, the still breathing bits, the... <laughs> no, no, we won't say that. Anyway, Pete said there was no connection. So there must be no connection. Pure coincidence. A sudden lightning flash of humanity. So Nauru, True Blue Aussie, Pete, or no connection, whatever, award is on the way. Well, as our government through Pete keeps pointing out, Nauru is totally independent in these things. Oh, apart from a bit of transfilled the refugees running the joint with Troubler was he financing it and determining where the sponges can end up and who can't come and who cannot go. At the other end of the ideological spectrum, the Socialist Party Minister Richard Mulls, the refugees, agreed with Pete that refugees could go anywhere they liked as long as it wasn't true blue was he? At first I thought he used the word humanely, but then realised he had said, as soon as humanly practicable. On humane, respect for human rights, thought we'd check on today's version of this USR bombing of that Syrian Médecins Sans Frontières hospital, accidentally striking it laser-like four times in an hour. It's, it's like a serial, isn't it, the daily stumbling explanation. Here we are, today's version is, condemn evil Russia for indiscriminate bombing. Oh, and the USR is really sorry and condemn evil Russia for indiscriminate bombing and the Pentagon will investigate the Pentagon. Caesar, render under Caesar. Oh, and the whole world, all lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy must condemn evil Russia for indiscriminate bombing. Right, well, we'll keep our eye out for tomorrow's version. As the caring business class fights to create jobs, it's very raison d'etre, by slashing wages which ignorant workers who just can't comprehend the delicate flower that is the economy fail to see prevents them from getting work or prevents other workers from getting work that lifelong devotees to those workers Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy's shortened ambition to their defence. The workers, that is, he leapt to their defence. A man who has devoted his life to the interests of workers would never defend the caring employers. OK, OK, he might know that the interests of workers correlates to the interests of caring employers and despair that some workers can't comprehend that and indeed will come to his ex-union putting that principle into extreme practice just this week. But he came out fighting over penalty rates and what a brilliant, basic, working-class argument. Penalty rates... God's gift to workers thump the table, are the difference as to whether or not they can afford to send their kids to a private school. Good heavens! Imagine a world where workers couldn't send their kids to a private school to mix with their future caring employers. It's as difficult to imagine as a future little Billy Socialist Party government not spending money on the state school system. Although, why bother when socialism, little Billy-style, decrees no one deserves to go there anyway, so public education is a waste of money? Where would workers be without little Billy? Well, where would workers be without little Billy's ex-union, True Blue Aussie's weakest, sorry, True Blue Aussie Workers' Union, which agreed Thursday with Port Kembla caring employer Blue Scrape the workers steal their wages, that the company could steal their wages. Recently struck new wage agreement abandoned, a three-year wage freeze, workers up to 20 grand a year worse off, true, changes to conditions which, surprise, surprise, don't absolutely benefit the workers, 500 job cuts. 
with just one condition to be to be settled. The 30 million handout, real figure, 30 million the company also demands from the New South Wales government to keep the plant running. Yes, wage cuts, wage freeze, conditions gone, jobs gone, massive public purse handout. Uh, what has the company given up in this deal? The pain of having to sadly let go workers, the pain of cutting workers' wages. But having said that, we feel it is a win-win situation. <laughs> Don't suppose the union ever considered just maybe the workers could run the place because they obviously don't need the boardroom, which is rubbing its hands all the way to the bank. We'd imagine with that union, that'd be the first thing they'd think of. After all, their former supremo little Billy and his successor, Paul Who's Poor Now of Macquarie the Prophet's Bank, they never stopped working for the interests of workers. Imagine what the deal could have been if they hadn't fought their guts out for those who, work, who fork out their union dues. Thursday morning, they were expressing concern over the sellout, sorry, negotiations. They were worried there was a fair bit of unrest among the bloody selfish workers who saw a few flaws in the proposal and the deal they'd stitched up with the caring employer mightn't get through. But by late Thursday, they were able to breathe a sigh of relief, have a celebratory drink in the caring employer's boardroom to toast common sense prevailing. Oh, and former ACTU Big Gun and Socialist Party Minister Greg Commieboy helped them stitch up the deal. The true Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, speaking for the caring employer, said the deal was laudable and will have to be continued. So watch this space. Now they've got a precedent which makes the nuclear hawk ACTU Wages and Incomes Accord look like a fourth volume of Dud's Capital. Another who has devoted his life unflinchingly to working people, both at the ACTU and for eons in Parliament, occasionally as Socialist Party Big Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, how the troubler was if people just loved his carping. Yes, simple Simon. As a close follower of his career, I hadn't realised till this week he was no longer placing his bum on the plush seats and was now enjoying the parliamentary pension fruits of his devotion to workers, but he was from the board of a training provider and labour hire firm that is facing class action litigation over allegedly misleading investors. The old simple jumping off the sinking ship, but we can be sure he would never sit on the board of a labour hire company that exploited workers or undercut evil union labour. It's been a dedicated career, all right. University, straight into the union movement, straight into parliament, straight onto company boards. In other words, all that devotion without a day's work in your life. Well done, simple. Oh, and finally, good to see Volkswagen joining a long list of great caring employers like Lord Rupert of Wapping, for instance, 7-Eleven, where no one above the level of $10 an hour cleaning staff had the slightest idea there was anything untoward going on, because really there wasn't just normal business practice. Good morning. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. And of course, there are court actions going on at the moment in regards to Lex Watton. And uh, you can support us anytime, not just for uh, Radiothon. You're on uh, 3CR 855 on your AM dial, and we're streaming and we're podcast. This is Solidarity Breakfast, and we've had a pretty full morning. This is Annie in uh, taking you down a, a, a walk amongst the. Uh, the progressive side of politics and the enemy of progressive side of politics. and uh, But now we're going to have a little chat with uh, Humphrey McQueen. I, I uh, followed up a listener request, which was to uh, have a chat with Humphrey McQueen, who was uh, personally uh, acquainted, of course, with uh, 
a very great fellow, uh, Jeff Sharp, who was uh, co-founder and editor of Arena, a very important magazine for Australian polit- politics from the left. And uh, he, uh, as always, was able to not only shine a light on Jeff Sharp as a, per- as a person, but also the history of the time that uh, uh, they both uh, worked together and others uh, to uh, bring alive the history uh, and uh, move forward with the uh, progressive side of politics in Australia. I think it's important always to remember that there are traditions in your own culture and society that uh, have established the basis of which we now draw. And in remembering Jeff, I think Jeff would want us to remember because he was a social theorist. I mean, he wasn't primarily concerned in the delivery, I mean, how to teach people to deliver welfare services. Uh, he was concerned to think about how ideas and practices went together. And he would certainly be concerned to think about how he is remembered in terms of that broader community of ideas of which he was a very active, um, well, more than a participant, a real initiator. And the way in which he taught, I mean, this is what you know the best teachers always do. They don't propagandise, they don't um, indoctrinate. They open up areas to people and students can then work their way through it and into it and come round to their own positions about it. It may be they come round to agreeing with what their teacher has to say. But Jeff was certainly never anybody, either politically or temperamentally, who thought that the only good students were the ones who were going to agree with him. In fact, I'm sure he felt the opposite, that the students he valued most were the ones who were going to challenge him as he was challenging them. Like you were saying, I mean, he, he talked, taught in the classic Socratic and dialogic manner, which is mm-hmm. uh, apparently he did a... Uh, and anybody who's been to university will know that there are star players, and uh, he he ran a uh, social theory seminar, which was much sought out. And the department you were actually searching for is much more highfalutin. It's called History and Philosophy of Science Department. How about that? Uh, well, well, <laughs> you I mean, stand I'm corrected. Presuming... <laughs> well, if we, well, we need to go back a bit to that because when it started, um, it grew out of... I mean, one of the things about Melbourne University, and people have written about this, is there was no sociology. Oh, there right. was an attempt not to allow sociology, that it wasn't considered a kind of proper um, uh, academic subject. The whole argument about where sociology was going to fit into the things and what it would impinge on. But what there had been from the 40s onwards was a very active social research unit there. And they published many, many books, which unfortunately, again, um, don't get the attention that, um, that they really deserve. I mean, there was one... I mean, they would do social surveys. Yeah. Um, there's one about the way in which old people were treated. Um, and the notion, you know, I mean, this wasn't... I mean, Jeff and those people grew out of this. I mean, they were the kind of students of these people. Uh, often these people had been European refugees to Australia and they continued to do the kind of social research that they had done there. So that foundation had been laid um, in the, well, during the war years and, 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 and into the 1940s. So there's this social theory but practice of actually going out into the community and investigating. There was one about, you know... Um, um, country life in Victoria and the conditions oh, really? there, and that. all you know. And as I say, and I mean, I, I, mean, I, I suppose these are these are these things. are Marxist uh, historians, really, like Archibald, right? Yeah, you know, the, the, these. I mean, I, I get ink. I mean, you know, I think I read these things, and I think I mean, read things now, and I think, and I look for any sense that there is this understanding among people who are publishing today. Um, you know, and to just give you one sort of side example, um, the Journal of Australian Political Economy had a special issue on health policy last year. And you could understand, given the attacks on Medicare that were going on, as to why that was politically important. Now... One of the great commentators on this field is the English writer R.M. Uh, Titmus, who you know, just established the field you know, in, in England. He left school at 14 and never got a university degree and ended up a professor at, uh, at London University. 
A smart boy. That, he does not appear in any of their footnotes. And I just think, how, how can you write about health and welfare policies and not know about Richard Titmus? He wrote a marvellous book called The Gift Relationship, studying the differences in societies where you have blood donors and people are paid for blood. I'll give you one example. But so the loss of those of the memory of that of that investigation that went on is something that Jeff would be regretting because he was somebody who saw those connections and the need if we're going to have intellectual work, you've got to be engaged a with the world outside yourself, but also with the internal debates and histories within the area in which you are operating. And he very much came out of that. Now, he also, of course, came out of the Communist Party. Well, before we get to that, yes. uh, I mean, we'll, we'll have a little sketch of his uh, his life in the sense that uh, he actually, in lots of ways, followed a um, trajectory which a very bright uh, working class person would could in those days. So he went to the war when he was 18, came back to uh, Australia and went to university through the, uh, I presume, the fast track uh, system that was uh, open to servicemen. Is that correct? Do you know? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they would have got, they would have got, um, effectively, what was a scholarship? Yeah. Yeah. And then he, then he uh, finished this in 1948 and then immediately started to teach his uh, rather interesting views about um, collective behaviour in the psychology department in 1949. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and then what I wanted to know was, I mean, then the next thing they talk about is that he got uh, attacked by, um, you know, besides his personal, you know, getting married, having children, he gets attacked by the Bulletin in 1961 and he defeats them by taking them to court by in 1969. But in between all this is the beginning of the arena in 1963. Can you take us back to that period? Yes. Well, um, this was probably the most sustained example of a red scare inside an Australian university. Um, I can't think of another case... I mean, you know, people, you know, were marginalised, they, they didn't get appointments and things, but they were done, and all the universities, I mean, the Vice-Chancellor here, Sir John Crawford, you know, was ringing up ASIO for advice. Mm. You, know, you know, we now know this, the documents are out there and things. So it wasn't as if it was isolated. But the attack on Jeff Sharp um, and, the, you know, the couple of people around him, um, that they were trying to take over the social work department. They were going, you know, this sort of conspiracy to take over the university, or in this in this area of it at least. This was the most open and sustained, and it was pushed partly by the Congress for Cultural Freedom. We were getting CIA money, of course, and the Bulletin was running these lines not just about Jeff Sharp and the Melbourne University lot. They were running it more widely as well. That there was a a general plot to take over the Aboriginal movement and to divide Australia, to to have a you know black Australia in the north and the Soviet would get influence in there. And to go back and read it now, and they're going to take over Antarctica and do the same thing. And it's a bit difficult to now to go back and think, you know, they were barking mad, but that was the mentality of the time. This was all taken very seriously. Now, Jeff was able, as you say, to win the case. But one of the things that I have learned, uh, and I haven't got, you know, bits of paper to prove this, this was oral sources from somebody who was involved in it who told me that what had happened was that the CIA had assured Packer, who, when he bought the bulletin, um, and was going to and put Donald Horn in charge, and that's another interesting story, um, that if they used it to attack people like Tommy Wren, um, like Jim Cairns, like Jeff Sharp, and they went to court and they had fees or they lost and their, their libel insurance went up, then the CIA would pick up the bill. So they were being underwritten financially to, to, to make some of these attacks. Donald Horn later apologised for his role in this. Again, it's a bit off the track, but people now often think of Donald Horn as being some wild lefty. Yeah, right. 
Well, he started, of course, as a Conservative candidate. I mean, he was born in Australia, then he went to England and stood as a Conservative candidate. Mm. Came back here and was very radical right-wing, but he very much opposed the Englishness, which he thought of as old and uh, very stuffy and Edwardian. What he's saying in the lucky country is we are lucky and they share it with the second-rate people who run the country. It was very critical of the Menzies era, but not from a left-wing perspective. Donald then begins to change. And it's important for, I think, people on the left to remember that people can change. Move from the extreme anti-communist you know, position that he had to the kind of position that he'd adopted by the late 60s and then the supporter of Whitlam and, you know, opposition to all of that. Well, you people were considered to be part of the new left, right? Well, well, I was part of the new left in the sense that I was of that generation. Mm. And if I could just make a personal connection to make, illustrate a larger point with my connections to Jeff Sharp and to Arena and, you know, Doug White and, and Danone... What they were important for me and for lots of other people for, Arena was a journal that was open to people. They encouraged people to try out ideas there. And that's where I, you know, the first bits of A New Britannia yeah. appeared as articles in uh, Arena. And that was true for, for lots of people. You know, you'd have a kind of half-baked idea that you wanted to get out somewhere and, you know, and they would take you in. They'd help you with it. You know, you'd put it in and they wouldn't, you know, their editorial support was that they would give you all the help as editing it to get you to say what you wanted to say as best as you could say it. And, and a lot of ideas that are, that are then spread you know, and tried out and become articles in learner journals or whole big publications that change the way we think about things. Arena has always had that openness. And, I mean, it's changed. When it began, its subheading was an independent Marxist publication. Now, it, some years ago, it dropped the uh, a Marxism. But it's remained open. I mean, when you go back to the context of it, it's 1963... The communist movement had been shaken, of course, by the anti-Stalin speech in 56 and then the execution of Emre Nagy in 58. You had a lot of people leaving the party, but they don't want to go over to the far right. I mean, it's very rare in Australia for ex-communists to turn out to be anti-communists, unlike the United States. So they wanted another home. And in a way, Arena was one of the places in which a group of them, some of them still in the party, some of them had left already, could come together and to think through what kind of policies they needed to implement the values they'd always held when they, when they joined the Communist Party in the first place. Um, and ARENA provided that for them. And the context of this beyond that is that from the late 50s onwards, the world communist movement was having a very serious debate about what was happening to the structure of the working class in the advanced capitalist countries. Because clearly, the old manual industrial working class was not as statistically dominant as it uh, had been. There were more service workers, there were more white-collar people, teachers, nurses, doctors, you know, accountants, people like that. And in a journal that came out of Prague called World Marxist Review, from about 59 onwards, there was this continuing serious debate with people in every country in the world, communist parties in every country of the world, contributing to what it meant. Some people saying, oh, the, you know, the old industrial proletariat's still the only thing. Other people saying, well, it's still important. And you know, So that argument was going around, and ARENA played a very important role in that in Australia because they developed what became known a few years later by people commenting on them as the arena thesis about the technologically trained. That if you had people who were now more people going to university, more people getting technical training, when they went into the workforce, they were going to bring other attitudes towards control and to their work practices. They wouldn't automatically expect to be told what to do and how to do it all the time because of the way in which they've been trained. Now, what they didn't under- predict, of course, no one could, was that having put these ideas forward from 63 to 65, 
the student revolt happened. So there was a kind of living proof of what they were saying, that these people who were going to universities, the big new universities, you know, and Monash opens in 1961, so you get you know, a whole new generation of people coming through and, and La Trobe a few years later. Um, this sense that the working class is not just changing structurally, but changing in a social psychological sense um, as well. It was very important to how Jeff had seen the world, his own research and his own ideas. And uh, that's the first part of the conversation that I had with uh, Humphrey about uh, Humphrey McQueen about uh, Jeff Sharp, co-founder and editor of Arena. Uh, uh, we're going to hear the next part. I just thought that you might like to know that you're on Solidarity Breakfast and who we're talking to, Humphrey McQueen. Who's the sort of person who uh, melds the practical with the esoteric? Very much. And, of course, education was one of their continuing themes. Because he was a dedicated teacher. He wrote and uh, sourced articles, but also was an editor of Arena and did commentary and lots of articles which were based on his theories, on theory. But he didn't write any books. No. I would hope now that the Arena people would pay the tribute of bringing together an important collection of the pieces that he wrote over those 50 or 60 years. I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but in one of the obituaries from uh, Guy Rundle, who was a co-editor of um, Arena during uh, 92 to 2006, he actually says that um, he thought that Jeff uh, created a distinct approach, perhaps the only fully original social theory Australia has produced to date. And he talks about uh, this business about... um, Oh, it's probably an oversimplification because it's very short, but I'm relying on him. He says that, uh, that Sharp argued that reality is composed of intersecting layers of abstract and concrete reality in different ensembles. Most theories from Marxism to free market liberalism attach to one or other and see it as the whole. And he saw that as being the deep problem of philosophical approaches or isms, really. What? Yes, and you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I mean that's a very good summary. I think of of Jeff's general uh, approach to to the complexity, um, but not a sense that it was all chaotic. That's right. And he wasn't somebody you know who said, "Oh, there's oh. no possible way of understanding this," uh, but the understanding requires us to work very hard um, and to think very deeply, and not to just grab a slogan here or there. Jeff was obviously a very very solid character. Uh, very quiet. I mean, not not somebody who you know, sort of charged out there to engage in you know intellectual sort of brawls with people. He had, in one sense, well, firm values. There was no doubt about that. They were they were unshakable. But he was somebody who, I suspect, you could say, in the best sense, that he had more arguments with himself than he did with anybody else. <laughs> that he kept himself alive and alert intellectually in those ways. There was Jeff, but also there was a coterie of people that worked very hard and tirelessly together, and obviously Noni, was, his wife, was uh, of that ilk. And the the that points to a, a, a fellow who was able to work cooperatively. These are no small things. Oh, well, and, you know, the collaborative work, in a way, is an expression of those attitudes towards social theory that you outlined. Uh, for him, these were not separate things. That the way you worked with people was an, was a manifestation of how you thought all social practice and social ideas operated, and that you learnt more about those social ideas and practices from how you worked with other people. Um, that it was that continuing interweaving of what you would have been doing in the university department with your students and learning from that and taking that as evidence to check against your concepts and your theories. Um, and he was, you know, he was very concerned always to make these things work together. And as I said before, I mean, when I first you know, submitted an article to them, he came round to my place and spent a couple of hours just, I mean, as if I was a student, a you know, postgraduate student, that he was helping to craft um, a master's thesis. And it was just a, you know, a couple of thousand word article. But it was this way of leading people forward. Um, and in a sense, at the same time, I've no doubt, he thought that 
he was learning something from having to encounter, because I would have been, well, 24 or 25, and he would have been, you know, you know, so a way again of what was this new generation, these people that he was writing about and concerned about, these technologically trained people, um, how were they thinking? Uh, what were their ideas? And how does he have to then check and reshape um, what he'd been working towards? Because it was always a working towards rather than a sense that this is the answer and I'm going to fit everything in that box. How, um, Humphrey, how did the uh, how did having working class people basically getting into the universities and then expressing ideas? I mean, both you and Jeff Sharp fall into this category. You guys turned a key and opened a door that changed Australia. Well, it had happened. I think you'd have to say. I mean, more. In one way, with Jeff Sharp's generation of those people who came back from the war, because they came in as a cohort. The Communist Party was very influential with adult education, with army education in the war, um, as they were in in the United Kingdom. Uh, So there was a cohort of them came in and were together in there. With my generation, because I'm I'm a bit pre-baby boomer, we were in a situation where that had in some ways been ruptured by the Cold War and the anti-communist attack. Um, and it was more that there was just sort of isolated figures. And in my case, I mean, I happened to attach myself to people uh, who'd come out of that, um, who I'd met, you know, who'd ended up in the ALP or somewhere. Um, and then that becomes the little spots in which when the big burst comes from the anti-Vietnam movement and the anti-conscription movement, a bit of it there about <clears throat> opposing white Australia from 1961 election onwards. Uh, so it comes together again. Uh, but we had been, in many ways, deprived of an intellectual tradition. Um, by the time I got started, we, you know, we had to go back and, A, find all that again, to find the Jeff Sharps, um, although Arena was there for us, so there is a, you know, that it isn't just a replication of his generation and then the 1960s generation. No, it was a growing. That's what you're saying. Yeah. It's a growing. It, did it make a difference that it was in Melbourne? I think it did. Yeah. Um, people have always talked. I mean, there's a whole discussion about this, and that would fit into Jeff's views of social practice and the spreading of ideas. That there was an equivalent journal in one sense. Um, Founded by ex-communists in uh, Sydney, um, uh, Outlook. Um, it was never quite. I mean, it wasn't so theoretical and conceptual. Um, it didn't have a Jeff Sharp behind it. It was, had, was more. Well, I wouldn't quite say activist, but you know, I mean, sort of more leaning in that direction. Whereas I think, in a sense, Melbourne as this, you know, whether it's the result of the weather. Um, or whether it's a result of something else. Um, But the difference in that sense, the the political traditions between Melbourne and Sydney and those intellectual traditions um, were were really quite um, uh, quite distinct. It didn't mean to say, of course, that that people in Sydney didn't welcome Arena. Um, I saw the first copies when I was in uh, Queensland when it first came out. And I think, you know, for people all around Australia to have something that was Australian, that was trying to deal with our reality and take these ideas that were spreading around the world, like, you know, how do you re, you know, what does the restructuring of the working class mean? Uh, and people were thinking about these and education and science in terms of, of Australian experience. People right around Australia thought, oh, God, you know. Yeah, whether you agree with them or not, I think we felt this was something that we wanted to be part of. And that was Humphrey McQueen talking about Jeff Sharp, who was a lecturer at Melbourne University and uh, co-founder and co-editor of Arena. Uh, He died earlier this year in June and he is well-remembered and uh, greatly missed. Uh, So it was very uh, timely to have a chat about such an important figure in uh, Australian uh, progressive 
uh, forces. Uh, today's program, we uh, talked, we heard from Dr. Joe Toscano, Kavina Rupipsi, that's P I B C I, people's public interest before corporate interest, an organisation you might want to look up and join, in fact. Uh, we talked to Sam Castro about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. She's an anti-TPP campaigner. In fact, Sam is going off to the Paris uh, Environment Conference. She's going to be one of the angels. The ang- She's on the side of the angels. Uh, we'll hear from her at 3CR. Keep posted. Rank and file. We had uh, we had uh, Kevin's uh, roundup of This Is The Week That Was, and uh, we've just been listening to Humphrey McQueen talking about Jeff Sharp. We're uh, going to go out now with um, a track from a new releases, which is uh, a justification from the metronomes. And uh, coming up next is uh, Asia-Pacific Currents. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.